Hi, I'm Andrew Duckworth, and a warm welcome to now our sixth podcast from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. I would like to thank all of our readers and listeners for their comments we have received regarding the series to date, as well as to our authors and guest interviewers who have taken part in our series over the past few months. We really do appreciate all your efforts. So far this year, we've covered a range of topics, including the role of robotic unicompartmental knee replacement with our editor-in-chief here at the Journal, Professor Barrett Sadat. We've had an excellent discussion on the role of DDH screening with Dan Perry and Alex Arbold. And last month, a really fascinating dialogue between Ian Murray and Dr. Scott Rodeo on cell therapies and orthopedic surgery. We do hope these podcasts are improving the accessibility and visibility of the studies we publish, for both you as our readers, as well as for our many authors. As you know, we hope that during the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we'll cover a range of aspects of the chosen study, emphasizing the important points of how the work has been designed, as well as the key findings from the study, and how these potentially fit into each of your day-to-day -day clinical practices. With this month's discussion, I suspect being relevant to many of our listeners. We also hope the discussion will give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the authors have developed the study and give them an opportunity to put forward the key findings of their work. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by David Bevelin from Belfast to discuss their study entitled Guidelines for the Follow-up of Total Hip Arthroplasty, Do They Need to be Revised? which will be published in the May edition of the BJJ. Welcome David and a big thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you Andrew. So David, moving on to the, the study, so it was a, obviously a retrospective study that was used to determine the route of referral or presentation of patients requiring revision from primary total hip arthroplasty in your centre over an almost 10 year period from 2005 to 2015. You detail very nicely in the introduction to your paper the increasing numbers of hip replacements being performed worldwide and how this is going to increase with time and thus how important it is that healthcare providers adopt a cost effective model for the long term follow up of these patients um, as well as the current national guidelines. So David, to start us off, could you give us a brief background on the history of the paper and, and include, including what the current guidelines are for uh, total hip replacement follow-up currently? Okay, Andrew, yeah, so, so first of all, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have considered the concept of discharging any primary joint after only one post-op review. Um, I did a fellowship with Mike Robleski in 1988 in Reitenden and learned the critical importance of long-term follow-up as soon as I was appointed in Belfast in 1990, I started to do high volume joint replacement. Um, I found myself with very large review clinics, which were very enjoyable, apart from the small number of very irritating patients who hadn't done well or who were unhappy. However, I began to realize that rather than being very irritating, these problem patients were the most important and needed more time than a new patient, and not the lesser time that I was giving them in a very busy review clinic. So in 1993, I set up what was called the Outcomes Unit and was joined by a young enthusiastic nurse called Seamus O'Brien, who was one of the first orthoplasty care practitioners in the UK, and Seamus and his team are still with me. So what happened was that Seamus saw all the post-op reviews on his own and then sent me the ones who had problems. So sadly, since 1993, I've only seen unhappy patients. At the same time, Seamus collected all the outcome scores and put them onto a database, whereas in reality, most surgeons who review patients don't do so in a structured fashion, so it's often a missed opportunity to capture information. At that time, we saw all hips, irrespective of their age, at six weeks, one year, five years, and 10 years, and always with an AP and lateral X-ray. However, once we got to the 10-year review stage with a capacity issue, and because the five-year patients were doing well, we stopped doing five-year clinics. Then over the years, we had to be more selective about our 10-year reviews and started just to see patients who were under 70 at the time of their operation. 
then in recent years, uh, we've, we've published our 10-year results for both our hips and knees, and quite simply, our revision rates for both hips and knees, and specifically how those revisions presented, didn't justify routine review of asymptomatic patients. I also have to say this was a very gradual change in my mindset, as it went totally against everything I've been taught. Now, moving on to your next point then, Andrea, about the, the current BOA guidelines. As far as I'm aware, the most recent guidelines are from 2012, and these state that particularly in patients of 65 and under, ODEP 10A weighted implants should be reviewed with, a, with, a, with an X-ray at one year, seven years, and every three years thereafter, if they're asymptomatic and if their X-rays are normal. Obviously, the implication being that if they aren't, then they should be seen uh, even more often than that. And of course, in this paper that we're now discussing, we suggest that such asymptomatic patients can be discharged at their first post-op review without X-ray. And I have to say the emphasis here is on, is on asymptomatic. <clears throat> it's also worth pointing out that in 2012, when the guidelines were written, an ODEP 10A implant had a better than 90% chance of survival at 10 years, was what we're now discussing is an ODEP 10A star implant, which has a better than 95% chance of survival at 10 years. So our expectations have changed, and, and perhaps our guidelines also need to change. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, and that's a really great, great summary of how, how, the, how your practice has changed over the, over the past few years, and, and just what the, the current recommendations are. But in just for a summary point, so what do you feel the, 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 the key points are in terms of the arguments for and against routine follow-up then? Okay, so, so I mean, I've no doubt that, that, that in THA, that the big game changer has been cross-linked poly. Yeah. Um, I believe it's the biggest advance in THA since uh, Harry Craven introduced Sir John Charnley to high-density polyethylene in 1961. Yeah. The major issue was that with old poly, osteolysis could lead to massive bone loss in the asymptomatic patient. Um, and this just doesn't happen with cross-linked poly. Mm -hmm. Therefore, quite simply, in my view, the argument against routine follow-up is a cross-linked poly has removed the need in the, in the asymptomatic patient if and only if they have a 10A star implant. And therefore, again, in my view, the clear argument for routine review is any patient with symptoms and any patient who doesn't have a 10A star implant. That's really interesting. That's, that's great. So moving on to sort of how, you, how you've done the study then. So obviously, um, uh, you know, if, could you, it's based, pre based on previously published data, isn't it? That's what it's, it's built upon. So can you do a, a brief background on that, on that study that the work is based upon? Yes, so we published this work um, in BJJ with a paper entitled Impact of a Learning Curve on the Survivorship of 4,802 Cementless Total Hip Orthoplasties. This was a retrospective review of my pinnacle implants over a 10-year period from 2005 to 15. The major learning point in that series was that certainly with the cry, you should always use a collar. Essentially, the collar prevented revision for early post-operative pribacetic fracture. Mm -hmm. As you said, with a total of 80 revisions in that cohort, and for this paper that we're now discussing today, we simply looked at primarily how and then when each revision presented. Okay, and so obviously you've, you've alluded to it already, but you know it's over a 10-year period, and you sort of mentioned it in the paper that your, your follow-up <laughs> over that period and how you've done the follow-up has, has, has changed a little bit over time. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, so, so between August 05 and March 15, uh, our standard follow-up for all THA patients within my practice included a five-day post-discharge phone call, mm -hmm. a clinical review at six weeks, 
and clinical review with x-rays uh, at one year and 10 years. Okay. But perhaps most critically, outside the, the routine review procedure, patients also ha have access to a helpline. This, mm -hmm. this is staffed by very experienced orthopathic care practitioners. Um, and it's worth pointing out again that 45% of patients who were revised in this paper self-referred using this facility of the helpline. Yeah, that's very interesting. We, we certainly have a similar setup here in, in Edinburgh. So in terms of obviously, we'll come on to the primary outcome, which is obviously revision in a minute, but can you sort of comment for the listeners on the, obviously the main outcome is revision, on the robustness of the data for, you know, there's a huge number of patients over a long time period um, and how sure you are that all the revisions were collected and that none, none were missed? Yeah, obviously that's a very important and critical point, Andrew. As mentioned in the manuscript, one of the limitations of the study is that the original cohort of patients were not reviewed at the time of publication. Mm. This means that we didn't have a loss to follow-up group and, and no information on patients who may have been revised at other centres. However, um, of the 975 patients who have subsequently been called for review at 10 years, of those 975, 134 were deceased mm. and that left 841 and we're able to make face-to-face -face or telephone contact with all but six of those patients. So in fact, our true loss to follow-up was only 0.6%. Also, as you know, Northern Ireland is a pretty small place. Mm. I work in Musgrave Park, which is the biggest centre, uh, but my other colleagues around the province uh, know that I personally like to hear about problems and in particular revisions. So I think it's very unlikely that we've missed any revisions. And even if we have missed, uh, a small number, it wouldn't really change the numbers or the message of this paper. No, I, I'd agree with that, uh, David. I think, in, if, I think that, that, that small validation cohort you've done is very nice because it's, you know, the chances are you've missed one if, if that, <laughs> um, you know, looking at the whole paper as a whole. So that's, that's really interesting. So in terms, obviously, we said the primary outcomes revision, but I mean, I, I know you do, but there are other data that you collect as well. Is there, do, you, do you collect PROM data normally for these patients as well? Yeah, so, so, so as routine, we, we collect an Oxford score on every patient uh, mm -hmm. pre-op and at six weeks. And now our policy is that we send a postal review with the Oxford score to the patient at one year. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that, that in England that score is done at six months. Mm -hmm. we, didn't, we didn't put this data in either this paper or the, or the previous one, uh, but clearly PROMS that data is important. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... Um, uh, moving on to the results of the paper then, the, as, you've, as you've alluded to, the overall instance of revision in the series was 1.67%, so uh, you know, 80 patients of the 4,802 that you treated, and the median time to revision was just shy of, of two years at 23 months. So David, can you, just, just for the listeners, describe in, a, in more detail the 80 cases that underwent revision, and in particular why and when they were undertaken? Okay, Andrew, yeah, so, so, so the, the reason for revisions in the ADD patients um, include instability, 27.5, so just over a quarter. Infection, and exactly a quarter, um, 25%. Mm. Symptomatic loosening, 18.8%, and fracture, and 7.5%. And those four things account for over 78% of all of our revisions. Mm. And it's worth noting that, that the 7.5% for early prebacillic fracture revisions was higher in the early part of the series, but essentially fell to zero when we started to use the cry with a color. Mm -hmm. The colored cori, we've had one fracture out of, out of, out of the last 4,000 cases. Right. And interestingly, this, this isn't just me. Um, unpublished, I received the data from the NJR, shows that the colored cori has the same revision profile as a cemented stem in the first year following surgery. So as you can see, not, not all cementless, or for that matter, cemented stems are the same. 
Yeah. Again, I think it's worthy of note that in the other causes of revision, 6.3% uh, were due to metallosis that occurred with ceramic or metal bearings in combination with cry pinnacle. As you perhaps know, it will be published our five-year results of this ceramic and metal bearing in B BJJ in mm. 2015. At that time, the revision rate was definitely less than 5%, but we know now that when we publish our 10-year results, it'll be between 5 and 10%. Mm -hmm. It won't be as high as 10, but certainly, therefore, given the present definition of a 10-I star implant, um, a Karai pinnacle with that bearing combination will not be a 10-I star. Yeah. So it's worth emphasizing that it's not just the stem and cup we have to think about. Uh, the bearing is also very critical. Mm -hmm. With regard to timing then, you also asked about the timing. 38.8% of all revisions took place within the first year, of which the majority were for infection and instability, which is typical of other series as well. And interestingly, over half of our revisions for infections were just, were just a liner exchange, and to date, um, none of those have become infected again. And then overall, 86.3% of revisions took place within the first, first six years. Right, yeah, so it's a, it's a vast majority, isn't it? So that sort of moves on nicely. So you've got a very nice figure one in the paper, um, which um, is looking, looks at the mode of referral for revision, and then and then the, and then you do a, a results of analysis of those results regarding the mode of, or, of referral and how this related to the timing of the revision post the index procedure. So if you could just go into a bit more detail that, uh, regarding that, David, for us. Okay, Andrew. Yeah. So again, the interesting thing here is, is that is that forty five percent of the revisions were as a result of self-referral, and almost half of those were for infection. I think it's worth pointing out that we really emphasise to our patients the importance of reporting a discharging wound to us, and yeah. specifically not to the district nurse or GP. So we feel we get our infections early, and perhaps that's why all our liner exchanges for infection have been successful, and we've had no recurrence of infections in those cases to date. Mm -hmm. Next up then, GP referral, which had a greater number of patients with aseptic loosening, the majority of patients from other hospital referrals were due to instability. Inpatients were mainly for femoral fracture. Emergency department referrals, referral patients were also mainly for instability, um, as with the other hospital referrals. Two patients were readmitted straight from home, either for, for infection or dislocation. And as you know then, there were two patients that were picked up at routine review, uh, one for infection and one for liner dissociation. But I really think that, that, that both of these would have self-referred if, if they hadn't been seen at those times. Okay. And just, just you, you alluded to briefly there, just, and just briefly, what, what were the actual numbers again? So in terms of the, for the hospital referrals and the GP referrals, what, what, what were the most common causes and what were the numbers for those, David? Yeah, so the so majority of other hospital referrals were for instability or dislocation. That was 10 of the 13. Right. Uh, whereas half of the GP referrals were ultimately for aseptic loosening. So that's sort of what you almost what you'd expect intuitively, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Great. So, so sort of sort of moving on to summing up the paper and in the context of the current literature, you know, the, the strengths of the study I think are, are without question. There's a large number of patients from a single centre um, with previously published data uh, in, in other areas, and I think the strengths are without question. Uh, and it's and it's clearly I think provided um, important information regarding the ongoing debate and and planning for the future with regards how we. Uh, carry out the long-term follow-up of our of our hip arthroplasty patients so David just in summary how do you feel the data fits into the current literature as well as the the current guidelines okay Andrew I think our, our data fits fits in well with other published data on reasons for revision from a number of authors um, and in particular from, from the NJR 
Clearly, though, as you can see, our policy is at odds with current guidelines. Mm. However, I think it has to be said that, that very few surgeons in the UK actually adhere to these current guidelines. So what I'm hoping is that this paper will, will provoke debate within our surgical community on this subject. No, I think that's I think that's right, and I think that's what we often hope of a lot of the of this of these papers is that I think it's it's the cr creating that debate and discussion, isn't it, so that we can actually move things uh, forward. I suppose one of the things that some people might say is you know you know prom data or patient satisfaction is 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 that as important or more important than than using revision and you know does that need to be considered? What, what's your feeling on that, David? Yeah, quite a, again, a very important question. Uh, but I do really feel that revision is important because yeah. it does give us a, um, a very good objective measure. I, I think in general, as surgeons, our expectations have been too low. Uh, in April 14, the ODEP 10A star rating was reduced with a less than 5% revision within 10 years, as opposed to less than 10% that, that have been in place for a 10A implant before 2014. Mm. I think today we'd all agree that, that, that a 10% revision rate would be considered totally unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And and although the 10A star implant is less than 5%, I think many of us would also feel that 5% is too high. Mm. And as you, as you know, at the moment in the NJR, uh, the best performing implants have a revision rate of less than 2.5% in 10 years. Yeah. Um, I predict by 2024, which is 10 years on from the last revision, a 10A star implant will become 2.5% in 10 years. Uh, and, and perhaps they'll give it two stars. <laughs> And by then, I again predict that the best performing implants will have a revision rate of 1% at 10 years. And that's, that has to be good for our patients. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also, if our best performing implants are getting towards 1%, uh, that will really focus attention on patient outcome other than revision. But I think it needs to be more objective. Uh, I think we start to need a, a, a more than just proms. Um, I think things like Fitbit technology, uh, and a more simple, accessible get analysis, uh, I believe, will become more important. And in reality, our surgery is still very crude. Our implants are, are manufactured to a very high specification using robots, and then we use a hammer to put them in. Um, I think we need to def define ideal targets for cup placement and stem placement. And in fact, we're about to submit data showing that hip center and femoral head center uh, and where you put them actually impact on patient outcome in terms of pain and satisfaction right. and certainly our patients aren't always as good as we think we as, as good as we think they are for example we're all well aware that the knees tend to be less happy than our hips and so this is this has been well published mm. um, and for me um, of my knees 18 percent or one in five have moderate to severe pain at one year so mm. that, that's a really big number whereas mm. it's half that figure for my hips so it's only 9% of my hips have moderate to severe pain at one year. However, interestingly, by 10 years, for my knees, the moderate to severe pain has dropped to 10%. But, but my hips at 10 years, 9% of them still have moderate to severe pain. Mm. And again, I believe our expectations here are too low. Um, and I think we need to do better than one in 10 of our patients having moderate to severe pain at 10 years. And I, I'm hoping that's, that's not just me, but... I think that's probably a, a fairly general thing for, for all our patients. That's really interesting, David. I think that's really interesting predictions for the future as well uh, in terms of where we, we go moving forward in terms of how we assess the patients and, and the outcome, really. Uh, and those are really interesting figures about, you know, the, the rate of pain afterwards and how it sort of 
sort of comes down to a, a similar level to the total hits, but they haven't changed. That's really interesting. So in terms of just to finish off, David, you know, um, what do you think, you know, are the main take home messages of the paper, but also, you know, what are the caveats related to the, the, the limitations of the study, do you feel? Yeah, so, so as, was, as we've said, I, I think our follow-up is good. I don't think we've missed many revisions. Mm. So for me, the key limitations are that this relates to one surgeon's practice and just to one implant. Mm. However, as I've said, my, my, my intention, the hope is that this provokes discussion. Yeah. Uh, so the, the take-home message, I think, is that we, we need to consider whether or not we need to review a 10A star implant. Yeah. Um, but the key thing is that symptomatic patients need an easy pathway back into our system through self-referral. And the sad thing is this often isn't the case. Um, and this is perhaps where the major challenge lies. And this is irrespective of whether you have a long-term review program in your hospital. The problem is that these review programs usually relate to, to an individual consultant. And I believe there's a cultural problem among surgeons, I think maybe across the world, where if you like, there's no long-term corporate or shared responsibility for patients with symptoms. Often the original surgeon is retired or moved on, so, so I believe the model of an experienced orthoplastic care practitioner team is a very good one. There's no reason why that team cannot see the symptomatic patient quickly and then triage as to firstly who the patient should see and secondly and perhaps above all how urgently they should be seen. That's excellent David, yeah that, and that sums it up very nicely. So um, yeah that, thank you so much that was a, a really interesting discussion and thank you for joining us for our podcast and congratulations on a, an excellent study. Okay, thank you, Andrew, very much. Thank you. So to our listeners, we do hope you enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook and the like and feel free to post or tweet about anything we have discussed here with you today. And thanks again for joining us.